I'll invite you to take your Bibles and open them to Psalm 57. Psalm 57. Over the past couple of months, we've been examining a series of psalms that were written by David during a time of particular testing in his life. He was a young man, and he had experienced success at at an early age, really as a teenager. And his success propelled him onto a national stage where King Saul took notice of him. And over the course of time, we find that King Saul became jealous of David. And he began to hate him. Ultimately, Saul tried to kill David, and David was forced to flee for his life. He spent the next four years on the run as Saul chased him all through the wilderness regions of southern Israel. Now, there's other psalms that deal with this time period, but really this series from Psalm 52 to Psalm 59, we've been working our way through, all seem to come from this same time of struggle when David was under a constant threat of death. I mean, just consider David, a young man in his mid-twenties, running for his life, hiding out in caves. His only allies are a bunch of outcasts. And yet it was through these trials that he wrote some of the most powerful testimonies of confidence in God that you will read in your Bible. Psalm 57 is no exception. One of the things we'll see today, I think, as we study it, or you'll see as you read it, is that there are many of the themes repeated here in Psalm 57 that we find in all of these psalms. It's especially similar to Psalm 56. And I think the reason why is that Psalm 56, we know, we we talked about, this has been a few weeks now, but uh, we talked about Psalm 56, that it was written when David had escaped to the, the, the city of Gath and the king of the Philistines. And the, the Philistines, of course, hated David. They wanted him dead. And David, so he had left. Things were so bad in Israel that he decided the only place he could run to was his mortal enemies. That was a mistake. He got there, realized they wanted to kill him. And so he had to, he had to pretend that he was insane. Uh, and they let him go. And David is, had escaped from there. And we read Psalm 56 that really appears to be kind of David's response as he's in the midst of that situation and and he's under that extreme stress and and he 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 kind of cries out to the lord then we we come to psalm 57 and david has escaped from there and and gone into a cave in the wilderness there's two times first samuel 22 and first samuel 24 that talk about david going and staying in a cave um my suspicion though i can't prove it is that this is referring to this psalm is referring to the first instance uh, there in the cave of Adullam, but uh, I can't say that for certain. It just, to me, it seems to fit. Psalm 56, dealing with his escape from the Philistines, he went right to the cave there at Adullam in First chapter, 1 Samuel 22. And Psalm 57, I think, reflects David now um, in a little bit more of a settled state. Okay, Psalm 56 was written under duress while he's in, in the stress of the moment, while he's uh, in this foreign king's court, and he's and he's you know they they've got him in custody, and they're going to kill him. And David uh, pretends to be insane, and this is whole situation. And so he 
he's kind of overcome by that and overwhelmed by that. And his prayer in Psalm 56 is just this cry of desperation. But then you come to Psalm 57, and it's almost as if he's escaped there. He's gotten to the relative safety of this cave in the wilderness. But if you know anything about caves, you know that, first of all, caves are dark. David didn't have electric lights that he could flip the switch on in the cave and make it like home. Uh, Caves are not necessarily very hospitable places. And the problem with going into a cave when you are on the run from someone is you don't know if there's another way out. And so going into the cave when someone is seeking you to try and take your life might be the best way to lose it. If you go in and they come and find you and there's no way out. And so David is not in, in, certainly not in a situation that we would consider to be ideal. And so he writes this psalm. But I would say this, that Psalm 57 is unique because there's a structure and a quality to it uh, that separates it from the other psalms that we looked at. It's not haphazard. It's not written in haste. It seems to be written with with a great deal of care and thought. Now, that's not to say that the other psalms are less valuable because of that. That's not to say that Psalm 56, written in the heat of the moment and the desperation of David's life, is to be maybe thought of as being less important or less significant. It's just that in this case, we have a little bit more of a kind of poetic structure. There's a little bit more beauty here in this psalm and the way that it's put together. And I think that this this shows us a little bit of David maybe having some time to think, to reflect on what has happened and where he is, and to offer us a response to the circumstances. Now, I will admit that Psalm 57 has proven to be a challenging nut to crack. I'll just tell you that right now. Uh, It's the only time I've been, how long have I been here now? Five and a half years? That's the only time in five and a half years when I went to bed on Saturday night and did not know what I was going to say on Sunday morning. And my wife can tell you I was pretty frustrated last night uh, as I was going to bed because I was not feeling very comfortable about getting up here this morning. And it was about 9.28 this morning when I printed off the notes that I have to work with right now uh, just before Sunday school started. I had woken up with a couple of thoughts in mind and I had to work them out a little bit. Um, And so I'm trusting the Lord that what I share with you this morning will be helpful. If you saw the notes that I have, I have, or not the notes I have here, but the notes that I initially wrote, I think I have five different outlines of this particular psalm that I was working on. Okay, it just it just challenged me. Okay, uh, and uh, and 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 I think that's a good thing. One of the things that challenged me is I don't want to say exactly the same things I said last time. I could probably print off my message from Psalm 56, just change a few of the references. And a lot of the points are very similar. There's a lot of things that David says that are similar here. But I want to look at what makes this psalm different and what's unique about this psalm. And I think there's one central idea, one central theme that we see in this psalm that's really, really, really significant, that really shines through even more than the other psalms that we've looked at. And I want to get to that. And let's read together, or you can follow along with me as I read Psalm 57, verses 1 through 11. David prays, To God, he says, Be merciful to me, O God. Be merciful to me, for my soul trusts in you. And in the shadow of your wings, I will make my refuge until these calamities have passed by. I will cry out to God Most High, to God who performs all things for me. 
He shall send from heaven and save me. He reproaches the one who would swallow me up. God shall send forth his mercy and his truth. My soul is among lions. I lie among the sons of men who are set on fire, whose teeth are are spears and arrows, and their tongue a sharp sword. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be above all the earth. They have prepared a net for my steps. My soul is bowed down. They have dug a pit for before me. Into the midst of it they themselves have fallen. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and give praise. Awake, my glory. Awake, lute and harp. I will awaken the dawn. I will praise you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing to you among the nations. For your mercy reaches unto the heavens and your truth unto the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be above all the earth. Now, pray with me, please. As we begin this psalm, and I want to ask the Lord's help as I share with you the message from Psalm 57 today. Heavenly Father, we have your word in front of us. Psalm 57, which David wrote. We know a bit of the circumstances behind it. We understand some of the things that were going on in David's life that caused him to cry out to you. And yet I pray, Lord, that you would help us to see the driving importance of one thought this morning. Help us to see the glory of God. I pray that above all things this morning, that would be visible. Would help me as I speak so that I could share this truth in a way that magnifies you and makes much of you. And in a way that encourages and challenges each one of us here this morning. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. The interesting thing as we read through this psalm, and one of the things that's helpful is if you if you asked me. What is the central theme? What's the main idea? What's the big point of the psalm? The advantage that we have is that David has given it to us twice. David repeats twice in this psalm the same refrain. The structure of the psalm is actually pretty simple if you want to look at it that way. It's really two stanzas. Each one ends with an identical refrain. And then there's one verse in the middle that kind of provides a hinge. Now, I'm not going to follow that pattern through it today exactly, but kind of, but I I, I think it's significant. The refrain, though, is given and repeated so that we will understand what's the main point, what's the big idea, and it's this. Verse 5 and verse 7 tell us, Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be above all the earth. It's the glory of God. That is the theme. That's the main idea. In fact, I would go so far as to say this. I think the theme of the psalm, if I were going to summarize it, would be this, that God's glory is the primary object of the life of faith. The glory of God is the primary object of the life of faith. Now, I'm going to explain all that as we go here, but I want you to understand that I think this is the central theme of the psalm. David says it in verse 5, and again in verse 11. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be above all the earth. David is concerned with the glory of God. 
I'll try to answer the why question after a bit. Why is David concerned with the glory of God? Why does that matter? But I, wanna, I want us to understand, first of all, what the glory of God is. What is glory? Well, the word glory means weight. And it has the idea of substance, right? When we talk about things that are weighty, matters that are weighty, we need to discuss some heavy things. Or we say that a person is, uh, one, one preacher I saw use this, use this expression to say, we say that a person is a heavyweight in that field. They're, they're, they're a person of substance. They're a person of glory. That's what that means. It means to have weight and substance. The glory of God is his weightiness. And I would submit the glory of God is connected to how we view him. And that's really what David is getting at here in the psalm. It's how we view God. It's what do we see when we look about at God? What do we see when we think about God? Do we think of someone who is weighty? Someone who is, uh, has substance? Or do we think of God as just some kind of mystical, mysterious being out there that has nothing really to do with us? David's view of God is attached and is, is all about the glory of God. It's about his weight, his substance. And so David makes much in this psalm of the glory or the weight of God. There are really two aspects here that I want to try and bring out for you to this morning about God's glory, about how we view God. Because I think that David's psalm here is given to us as a call to glorify God, to make much of God, to recognize, to confess, to express the weightiness of God. His grandeur, His majesty, that which makes Him great. David is trying to get us to see that this is to be the primary focus and thought of our heart as men and women of faith, if indeed we have faith in God. That when we think about God, it's the glory of God that comes to the forefront. The weight, the substance, the matter of God. And this is seen in two different ways here in this psalm and then in in our lives. And the first is this, that God is glorified when we trust in him. That's what David tells us really in the first five verses of the psalm. I mean, just think about it for a second. If God is weighty, if God has substance, if God has uh, uh, greatness and majesty... then how should we approach Him? How should we speak to God? How should we pray to God? How should we appeal to God? Well, the first verse shows us how. David says twice, Be merciful to me, O God. You see, if God is weighty, if He is glorious, then we should humbly pray. 
And what should we pray for? We should pray for His kindness and for His favor. See, the word merciful here in verse 1, be merciful to me, David says. says it twice. The word merciful means uh, it's an appeal to someone who is superior that they would look down in favor and kindness toward one who is inferior. David appeals to God, and his appeal to God is, I am very low and needy. God, you are great and mighty, and I need you to be kind to me. I need you to look upon me and to see me for what I am, and then to reach down, to condescend, to bring yourself down to my level. That's what David is doing in his opening phrase. By the way, it's the same thing that he says in verse 1 of chapter of Psalm 56. Be merciful to me, O God. He says it again here, twice. He's emphasizing his great humility, his need for God's mercy, for God to, to be tender-hearted toward him and to express kindness. And he says, my soul trusts in you. David, David seeks God's kindness. He seeks God's favor because he is trusting in him. This is David who is crying out to God and he is in utter dependence on God. He's threatened by enemies. And when a believer is threatened by enemies, what does he do? He runs to God for help. That's what David is doing. We see David, he is coming to God from the beginning and saying, Lord, I see who you are. You are far greater than I am, and I need your help. So if God is weighty, if he has glory, then we ought to pray to him in this way. We ought to be humble. We ought to entreat him for his kindness and his favor. But David goes on there, then in verse 1, and he talks about the shadow of your wings. He says, there I will make my refuge. Well, this also fits. If God is weighty, if God is glorious, then we should seek refuge under his wings. We should seek refuge at his side. The picture that David uses here is really powerful. In the shadow of your wings, I will make my refuge until the calamities have passed by. This is a picture of David like a, like a, a young bird who huddles underneath his mother's wing as she holds him close to her side and puts her wing over him to protect him. And David says, I'm going to just stay huddled here at your side under your wing until this whole thing blows over, until all the threat goes by. And of course, there's a little irony here. David is in this cave, right? And the cave is a place of relative security. But David is recognizing there's a far greater security that he has. It's at God's side, under his wing, protected, guarded, sheltered. But you see, this is an expression of David's faith as well. I find it really fascinating, and I don't know if, as you read this, you, you may not catch it. David says, in the shadow of your wings, I'll make my refuge. This illustration, this idea of the shadow, of uh, uh, being under the shadow of God's wings is used uh, the first time I could find it in Scripture in the book of Ruth. Ruth chapter 2 and verse 12. Boaz was a man there in Israel. 
had met this woman, Ruth, and he says to her in Ruth chapter 2, verse 12, Yahweh, the Lord, repay your work, and a full reward be given to you by Yahweh, God of Israel, under whose wings you have come for refuge. What is Boaz talking about? Well, if you're familiar with the story of Ruth, you know that Ruth was from another country. She was from the country of Moab. And that her um, mother-in-law, Naomi, along with her family, had moved to Moab during a time of famine. That's where she met uh, Naomi's daughter, our son. She married him, and then he died, and so she was a widow. Naomi was also a widow. And they were there in the land of Moab, and they were living there together, and... Naomi decided, I'm going to go back to my, my homeland. I'm going to go back to Israel to my people. And she left. And you remember that Ruth went with her. Naomi tried to get Ruth to turn back and said, listen, there's nothing here for you. I don't have any, I don't have any sons to offer you. There's no one to marry you. There's no hope for you. There's nothing for you. You should just go back to be with your people. And Ruth said, no, I'm not going to go back with them. I'm going to go with you. Wherever you live, I'm going to live. Wherever you die, I'm going to die. Your people are going to be my people, and your God will be my God. That was her expression of faith. And Boaz here recognizes that, and he characterizes it using this image, that she has taken shelter, refuge, under the wings of God. And he uses this image. Now, one chapter later, in Ruth chapter 3 and verse 9, Ruth comes back to Moab, and she makes a marriage proposal. And in her marriage proposal, she says this, I am Ruth, your maidservant. Take your maidservant under your wing, for you are a close relative. Ruth uses the same image of protection and offering comfort and help when she proposes to Boaz. Now, the reason I think this is really significant is that if you follow the timeline of Scripture, you realize that that Boaz and Ruth are the great, great grandparents I think that's right. Wait. No, no, no. Great-grandparents. Sorry, i got to do the math there. They're the great-grandparents of David. Ruth and Boaz are David's great-grandparents. So I have to wonder, did David hear this story from them about how they met and how they got together? Or maybe he didn't hear it from them. Maybe he heard it from his grandfather, their son, shared with them the story of how his parents met. And maybe this was shared with him. And David thought about Ruth and her faith in God coming to find shelter under his wing. And how she reached out to Boaz using the same image that Boaz would be her redeemer. And then David takes the same image and uses it here. This is an expression of David's confidence in his faith. But again, understand, it just makes sense. If God is glorious, if God is great, if he's powerful and mighty, then it makes sense that we would seek shelter and protection from him. It's appropriate. If God is weighty, that we would seek refuge in him. We go on to verse 2 and we see the same thing being put forth here. If God is weighty, if he is glorious, then we should honor his name. David 
speaks here of God Most High. He says, I'm going to cry out to God Most High. The Hebrew there is El Elyon. It points to God's great majesty and His exaltation. God Most High. Abraham used that term to refer to God who rules over all the earth. And David goes on to describe him even further. God, most high. God who performs all things for me. I love that description. Love it. I think it's awesome. God who performs all things for me. This is the God who finishes things. This is the God whose power is so great that his plans are never thwarted. And his works are always accomplished on behalf of those who trust in Him. David is not saying, God does whatever I want here. What David is saying is, that when God has promised something to me, He keeps His word, and He never fails. That's the God that David is trusting in. That's the God that David is speaking of. That's the God who's glorious. Because He keeps His word. He performs all of His intentions. There's an interesting comparison here, by the way, in verse 2, if you compare it with verse 6. Because in verse 6, David's enemies, they have a goal in mind. They set up a net, they dig a pit. Their purpose is to hunt him. The the terminology of setting up a net or digging a pit is the terminology of hunting. They're going to hunt him down. And their intention is, we're going to hunt David down, we're going to capture him, we're going to kill him. But verse 6 tells us that their their plan doesn't quite work out the way they think it's going to work out because verse 6 tells us that they fall into their own pit. That they have a plot, they have a scheme to capture David, but it ends up coming back on them. See, we call that unintended consequences, right? We have, we set out to do one thing and it doesn't work that way and it ends up being something totally different. In their case, it was evil motivation. But in our case, even when it's not an evil motivation, even when we're setting out to do something good sometimes, it doesn't work out the way we plan. But that just illustrates the fact that God is great and we are not. Because when God sets out a plan and when He gives His word, it happens because He performs all things. He never fails to come through on His promises. And therefore, David lifts up his name. He magnifies his name. He speaks of him as God Most High. He calls him what he is, God who performs. God, you're the one who does everything. God, you never fail. That's how David speaks of him here. And it's instructive to us about how we should speak of God and to God. Verse 3. If God is weighty, then we should trust His promise to save. If God is truly glorious, then we ought to trust in His salvation. David says, He shall send from heaven and save me. He reproaches the one who would swallow me up. God shall send forth His mercy and His truth. This is a beautiful statement here. This is God, David expressing his faith that in a very personal way, God is going to send help for David. Here's David in the midst of need. 
Here's David in the midst of a very difficult time in his life when, when he's surrounded by enemies and there's threats on every side and he needs help and he is confident that God is personally going to dispatch help. That it's going to come directly from God to David. And the help is going to come in the form of God's mercy and his truth. His mercy is his continual love. And truth here reflects God's faithfulness. David said, God is going to send his love and his faithfulness, and it is going to rescue me. It's going to go from heaven to me. I expect this, a personal salvation, a personal deliverance from God. You say, well, how could David, when he's in this situation, in a cave, hiding out, uh, running from his enemies, no friends, no allies that he can really look to that can help him of any, of any substance or strength, how can he expect God to save him? Well, David says it's because of God's mercy and his truth that he's going to send. He will do it. David has confidence in the salvation of God. And the reason that David has confidence in the salvation of God is that mercy and truth are who God is. They are a part of his very nature. He cannot deny himself. David's counting on that, right? That God cannot deny himself. In fact, that's what every believer counts on. That God cannot deny himself. That God will defend his people by acting on his own word, by being faithful to what he has said. So David believes, trusts, hopes, rests in confidence here in what God will do. If God was not glorious, then there'd be no reason to expect him to save. So David is trusting in God because God is weighty. Glorious. Verses 4 and 5 really come to the end of the first stanza. And we see if God is weighty, then we should seek His glory in trials. This is where the the psalm kind of takes a turn. Verse 4 is really fascinating, by the way. I've got to show you this. Um, Alec Motier, in his devotional translation of the book of Psalms. He translates verse 4 this way. My soul, in the middle of lionesses, lie down I must, inflamed ones, sons of men, their teeth, spear, and arrows, and their tongue, a sword, sharp. He explains his translation by saying this. He says the Hebrew of verse 4 is just as jumpy as this rendering. Three significant words in each line. It sounds like the beating of David's heart. Or maybe his imagination, in his imagination, the steadily approaching footsteps of his pursuers. It's as if David is just trying to capture what he feels in the moment of his heart beating, that thought in his chest of his heart beating as the, the, the enemy is closer and closer, hearing the footsteps possibly. That's the picture here. And this is the moment at the end of verse 4 where we would expect to hear David say something like, God, destroy them. 
God, judge them. God, remove my enemies. Take away the trial. Take away the trouble. Take away the hurt and the conflict. Whatever it is, God, remove it. This is where the psalm is surprising because that's not what David says. He's looking at his enemies, lions with with spears and arrows for for, uh, teeth, with swords, razor sharp for tongues. And what does he say? What is he concerned with? What is his focus? Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be above all the earth. David's concern, his thought at this moment is to glorify God in heaven. How do you explain this? To what end is David praying here? God, glorify yourself. God, expose who you are. Show the whole world who you are. In the heavens, on the earth, everything. Let everyone know and see who you are. That you are weighty. That you are glorious and majestic and mighty. We've touched on this subject before. We've said that if God is glorified over all the earth, a part of that glorification is the destruction of the wicked and the salvation of his people, the rescue of the righteous. J.J. Stuart Perrone puts it this way. He says, God's deliverance of those who trust in Him is bound up with His glory. For the wicked strike not only at the righteous, but at God Himself in them. The prayer, therefore, for God's exaltation is at the same time a prayer for His own deliverance. So David's concern and his heart beat is not with his enemies. It's with the Lord who is glorious to lift Him up, to make much of Him. And then we have the transition in the psalm. The transition from prayer and crying out to God to praise and singing to God. The second half of the psalm. It's worth noting that David's praise follows his faith. It doesn't precede it. We don't start by praising God. We start by believing and trusting in God and seeking refuge in Him. And then we praise God. Then we sing. And so as much as we would say God is glorified when we trust in Him, we would also say this, God is glorified when we praise Him. And what's interesting to me is that as soon as in verse 5 David expresses the glory of God and his desire that God would be exalted, it's almost as if once he says that, the thought of his enemies just disappears. Because verse 6, he describes them, the enemies and all their preparations, and then he says, they fell into their own pit. They suffered their own destruction. And they're never mentioned again after verse 6. The enemies are just gone. Now, again, 
Remember where David is. He's in a cave. He's hiding out. His enemies aren't actually gone. Saul is still hunting him. He's going to be hunting him for another four years. And yet David, when he thinks about the glory of God, it's as if his enemies have all disappeared. There's no one left. There's no more threat. They don't factor in. And so we see David in verse 7, kind of echoing the first verse of the psalm. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. And I'd say it this way, if God is weighty, then we should be made to stand. That's what steadfast means. It means stood up. It means fixed to stand firmly. David's heart was bowed down by the attacks of his enemies. But now, as he's reflected and thought about the glory of God, his heart is fixed. It's firmly rooted. He's standing once again. He says, my heart is steadfast. I will sing and give praise. I love this because when David understands the glory of God and he focuses on the glory of God, his heart is strengthened and made firm. And the, 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 the first thing that that produces in him is a song of praise. And we see that continuing on in verse 8. Awake, my glory. Awake, lute and harp. I will awaken the dawn. Again, if God is weighty, if God is glorious, then we ought to be the first ones to sing. Picture David. He's fled into that cave and night has fallen. Again, they're inside of a cave. There's no electric lights. Maybe they had torches. Maybe not. Maybe they didn't want to risk tipping off Saul to where they were. And so maybe they spent the night in the cave in total darkness. Not a very comforting place to sleep. And as David cries out to the Lord in the darkness of the cave and he, and he prays to God to be merciful and he asks God for deliverance and then he, he, he reflects on the glory of God and he begins to sing, Be exalted, O God. And David anticipates that the morning is going to break. The dawn is coming. But even as the dawn is coming and the sun is going to rise, David is already singing. Even the sun isn't going to beat David to praise the Lord. That's David's view of God and his glory is such that even now he raises his voice to sing from the cave as he hides out. And his song continues in verses 9 and 10. I will praise you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing to you among the nations, for your mercy reaches unto the heavens and your truth unto the clouds. You see, if God is weighty, then we should broadcast His grace to all. He speaks here of the peoples, Verse 9, that word peoples is the word for tribes, probably referring to the tribes of Israel. But then he uses the word nations, and the word nations is a different term. It's the word that, that speaks of all of the other peoples on the earth. And so there's an international flavor here. David is, is, is talking here about singing and praising the Lord, about lifting up his hands to glorify God. 
not just among the people of Israel, but among all the nations. And why is that? Why would that song of praise go out to all the nations? Well, because the mercy and the truth of God. He, they're back again, by the way. Back from verse 3. Verse 3, David spoke about the mercy and the truth of God as personally sent from God in heaven down to him on earth at his time of need. But now he speaks of the mercy and the truth of God as filling the earth and filling the heavens, extending all the way unto the heavens, he says. Even the very clouds, he says, the, the, the mercy and the truth of God, they, they go all the way, they reach all the way up. And I would say it this way, if there's enough grace for one sinner, there's enough for all of them. And so David, he can't even contain himself. He's thinking about the glory of God. He's meditating on the goodness and the greatness and the majesty of God. And he sings and his song goes out beyond the borders of Israel. Because God's grace is for all. It fills the earth. It fills the heavens. It extends to the far reaches of creation. Anywhere that it is needed, it's available. And then we return in the final verse to the refrain. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be above all the earth. And the burning question that we come to in the end of the psalm is this. Will you exalt the glory of God above all? You know, when we're in the middle of trials, it's easy. I, I shouldn't say easy. I don't want to say anything's easy, but when we're in the middle of trials and, 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 and hardships, our tendency is to pray for deliverance. We want God to rescue us. We want God to fix the problem, to take care of it, to, to remove the, 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 the enemy or remove the people that are hostile to us or whatever it is. God, just fix the problem. And I think sometimes when I read a psalm like this, I have a hard time really relating to David because I don't, I don't really usually think, um, I don't usually think of my enemies like lions circling me with spears and arrows for teeth and with sharp swords for tongues. That doesn't usually seem to fit the circumstances I find myself in very well. But I can relate to David and the understanding of the weight of God, the glory of God. Because God is glorious. His praise and His majesty is above the heavens. His glory is over all of the earth. So that when I think of God and I think of who He is, my refuge, my shelter, the Most High God who rules over all, the God who performs all things for me. I'm reminded that in the middle of trials, instead of seeking my own self-serving end, instead of seeking my own good of what I want to see happen in the trial and the, and the struggle, God, fix the problem for me. God, make it good for me. God, remove the obstacle. 
Instead, I'm reminded to trust in the Lord for refuge. I'm reminded to glorify Him, to exalt Him, to praise Him. David's focus is on the glory of God, his heartbeat. Where's yours today? To pray for God's exaltation, for his glory to spread through all the earth, is to pray for your ultimate deliverance. And we know this because the Bible promises that God is going to come again to the earth that Jesus Christ is going to return to this earth in power, in glory, that He is going to establish His kingdom, that all of the nations of the earth are going to gather to worship Him. He will be exalted in the earth. His people will be delivered. The wicked will be punished. When he glorifies himself, that ought to be our focus. That ought to be our end. Now, we're not Presbyterians here, but if we were, we probably would subscribe to the Westminster Confession of Faith. And the Westminster Confession, it was written several hundred years ago, when it deals with the chief end of man. What's the chief purpose? What's the primary purpose and goal of man? And it says it is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That was David's heart. That ought to be your heart this morning. Let's pray.